Good evening. Welcome, everybody, to the next in our Books That Changed Humanities series. I'm Will Christie, the head of the Humanities Research Centre, and I'll start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and pay our respects to the normal people past and present. And now I will introduce our speaker associate, Professor Ben Penny, a graduate of the universities of Sydney, Cambridge and ANU and bent on your extremely out of date website. <laughs> like eight years out of date. I'm, I'm sure there's another one somewhere that's it's, more up to date. It's, it says you're, you're also a student at the University of Peking. Yeah. Could you explain that to us? I was a student at the University of Peking. <laughs> what were you doing at Peking? I was a, I was an a foreign student. It doesn't, it doesn't I, I explain. Didn't, not only is it out of date, it is it's short on explanation. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was uh, both impressive and intriguing, and I thought I'd get you to talk a bit about that. But you've held a variety of positions here at the ANU since you came here as a doctoral student in the 1990s, I think. Uh, 89. 89. But uh, uh, that sort of momentous year, 89. Not least, of course, the foundation convener of the Herbert and Valmay Freilich Foundation for six years from 1999 to 2005. And Ben and I have been working on that recently together. In the same year, uh, Ben had forgotten that he was appointed to the, that's 2005, he was appointed to the Division of Pacific and Asian History, and in 2010 became Deputy Director of the New School of Culture, History and language in the ANU's uh, CAP, or College of Asia and the Pacific. In 2015, Ben was appointed director of the Australian Centre on China in the World, and the head of the China Everyday Research Stream. Ben is an historian of religions in China who has worked on medieval China, 19th century, and on contemporary China. He was a prolific co contributor to the Routledge Encyclopedia of Taoism, which is appropriate, that came out in 2008, and his most recent book is The Religion of Falun Gong, uh, Chicago University of Press 2012. Currently, Ben is working on a monograph concerning expatriate scholarship in Shanghai after the First Opium War, 1839-42, to 42 as well as co-editing East Asian History. And tonight, the book that changed humanity that Ben is going to introduce us to is Lao Tzu, Tao Te Ching. And you can pronounce that correctly. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Welcome, Ben. Uh, thanks, Will. Um, yes, I'm going to be talking about the Lao Tzu Tao Te Ching tonight. Um, and I thought I'd start uh, just with a few bits of data about it, because I'm not sure all of you will be familiar with it. So what we're dealing with here is a book that's about two and a half thousand years old. Um, book is a word I'll examine a little bit later, but for the moment, let's call it a book. Um, it's not very long. It's only about 5,000 characters long. In Chinese, it's even sometimes known as the 5,000 character classic. That Short text is divided traditionally into 81 chapters, which are in two parts. They are given the designation, the part about the Tao and the part about the De, only because chapter 1, which is the beginning of the first part, uh, begins by talking about the Tao, and the chapter that begins the second part 
uh, generally chapter 38, talks about the Dao. Um, the Dao is traditionally translated as something like the way or the path. In Chinese, that's what the ordinary word means. Um, it also means, as we'll see in a minute, to speak. Uh, <clears throat> um, the de is um, a very hard word to translate. And I've just given it here as the life force or vitality. Um, you will find um, a common translation of it in the olden days was virtue. Um, uh, but it doesn't, it, that was very confusing because it was in the meaning of virtue as in the virtue of an object, not, not the good, the goodness of it. That had nothing to do with it. It was kind of the innate nature of it or something like that. But I prefer something like life force or, or vitality. Um, these numbers, by the way, are just chapter numbers that I've given for those of you who are interested in looking it up. Um, if you read it, what is immediately obvious is that it doesn't read like connected prose. It's not a discursive um, text. It's, it's very terse. Uh, um, it's aphoristic. Uh, there's statements that don't necessarily seem to connect with one another next door to each other. Um, and it's, so I've said it's terse and economical. When you read it, it's also in parts abstruse and genuinely ambiguous. I don't mean that we don't know what it means, although that is true in many parts, but in some parts of the text, even the most skilled reader of literary Chinese cannot decide whether it means this or it means that. Both readings are entirely possible. Part of the reason for that is that it's written in this language that we typically now called literary Chinese, often also called classical Chinese. This language uh, has no punctuation. It has no capital letters. It has no obvious sentence markers. Um, so in a way, you decide where one bit starts and the next bit finishes, if you know what I mean. Sorry, finishes and then starts. Um, so modern editions will put in all the punctuation. But if you're reading it as you would have read it originally, there is no punctuation. And that's normally not a problem in literary Chinese. If you're reading you know, standard historical works or official records or whatever, it's quite clear because of the grammatical particles, as we call them, that scatter the text. Um, this book is interesting and unusual in the sense that it's very light on on those grammatical particles. And so, there is genuine ambiguity in what it's saying. Uh, one of the things that it does have, and I'll get back to this, is there's some evidence of rhyme. Now, given that we're talking about a book that's two and a half thousand years old, rhyme tends to be hard to spot uh, because languages change, obviously. Uh, there are those who do historical phonology, some indeed in the audience, um, have an interest in this topic. And so we can tell what was a rhyme and what was not a rhyme, probably. Uh, but it's a little tricky. But it, there, is, uh, there are elements of rhyme in it. Um, it is, um, this is a statement that everybody makes. It's the second most translated book into English after the Bible. Um, I'm not sure whether that's true, but it's what they say. There have been lots and lots and lots of translations of it. 
uh, within to Western languages, we know that there was a translation into Latin that was done before 1788 because it was presented to the Royal Society in 1788. Um, but it may have been done a long time before. That probably was, given the presence of Jesuits in China for, what, 180-odd years or something before 1788. The first translation to French was 1841. The first into English into 1860 is in 1868. And there have been lots and lots and lots since. Um, so who was the author of this thing? Well, this is a, another of those questions that we can't really answer, but I'll have a go at telling you what we know about the author of this. Uh, author is one of those words like book uh, in this context. It's like, you know, uh, it's all very... I'm not being, I'm not being uh, subtly critical theory here. I'm just talking about what a book is and what an author is, and in this case, it's just we don't know really. Um, so this is the man, at least this is the man as rendered... Um, 1,500 odd years after he was meant to live. So he probably didn't look anything like this at all. Um, this comes from Fujian province on the southeastern coast of China. Uh, it's a very famous sculpture um, of Lao Tzu. Uh, but clearly, it could be anybody. So who was this guy? Well, the name Lao Tzu in Chinese, this is how you write it, simply means old master. There's no um, more designation of that. And that's unusual uh, in Chinese um, philosophical, early philosophical texts, where, uh, for instance, Confucius is known as Kungzi, Master Kung, that's his last name, his family name, Master Kung, Kungzi. Mencius, Mengzi, Master Meng, Meng was his family name. Zhuangzi, Zhuang was his family name, right? So, but here, Lao is clearly not his family name. <coughs> He's just known as the old master. The first records we have of him come from this book, uh, the Shiji, written or translated just plain historical records. The first major historical work in Chinese constructed as a history kind of consciously, um, written by this man Sima Qian in around about 94 before the Common Era. So it's a long time ago, but we're still talking probably 400 years after the book was quote-unquote written. Um, Sima Qian has a biography of Lao Tzu in the book, in the historical records, and he actually has three different possibilities about who the guy was. Um, first, he says his name, he was a Mr. Li, with the given name Er, which means Ia, which is why, if we go back to the picture, you'll see that he has rather distinctive ears. And, 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 and Lao Tzu is often depicted with these odd ears, presumably for that reason. Um, they said his courtesy name was Dan, and he was an official in the archives of the state of Zhou. At this time, we're talking about a China that was not unified, the so-called Warring States period, where there were a number of, of different independent states. Um, at this point, about seven, depends on how you count them. And Zhou was one of those states uh, that got absorbed in the Warring States period. Um, eventually, when China was unified under the Qin Dynasty, um, it was you know, one of those that had disappeared. So this is number one story, that he was this official in the archives of the state of Zhou, and his name was Li Dan. He also says he could, however, have been this man 
Lao Lai Zi. And then he doesn't tell us anything about this guy particularly, Lao Lai Zi. Or he could have been another man called Lao Dan, which probably in context just means old Dan, not Mr. Lao family name, given name Dan, but that old guy called Dan, who was also in the state of Zhou, and he had a very he had a senior position. He was the grand scribe in that. But then at the end of this description of who this guy possibly was, Sima Chen says, some say that Dan was Lao Tzu, others say he was not. Our generation doesn't know the truth of the matter. So we're in this position where the earliest biographical record of this man, man, who wrote this book, they're already saying by roughly 100 before the Common Era, we don't know who he was. So who are we to tell? Um, so there are two stories that are very famous in the, the Shuji record about Lao um, which I'll just um, tell you now, short little anecdotes. One is this one, Confucius asking Lao Tzu about the rites. This is a painting of that scene. It comes from the Ming Dynasty, so that's you know, many, 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 many hundreds of years later. But it's a nice painting, and that's how I included it. So the story goes that um, Lao Tzu, in this version, was an older contemporary of Confucius. So they, they were living at the same time, but Lao Tzu was his senior. And as is appropriate for Confucius, he had respect for his seniors. And he said, uh, I should go and ask Lao Tzu about the rites. The rites meaning the proper ways of behavior, the proper rituals of conformity that people had, uh, both in a political sense, the way that the minister would relate to the to the, the ruler, the way that sons related to fathers, the way that wives related to husbands, and so on and so forth. The, 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 the um, behavioral modes within Chinese society at the time. This is a big thing that Confucius talked about all the time. Um, and it's really pretty dull, but some people like it, but not me. Um, anyway, so Confucius asked Lao Tzu about the rites, allegedly. and. Lao Tzu replies that nothing Confucius cared about really mattered at all. And that he, he, Confucius, should get rid of his arrogance and his posturing and his ambition. Which is, you know, I think a fairly reasonable statement to make about Confucius. Um, <laughs> Confucius then doesn't go away in a huff, as you would expect, but instead says, I will never know how the dragon mounts the wind and clouds and ascends into the sky. Today I have seen Lao Tzu. Is he perhaps like the dragon? So this is a story not told by Confucians, typically, but by people who are sympathetic to Lao Tzu. But it's, it's to show that Confucius was you know, demeaning himself before the great wisdom, the blah, 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 blah. Um, the second story, which is uh, fascinating, is represented in these couple of pictures. Um, and that is concerning the composition of the Tao Te Ching. Now, the story goes, and this is Lao Tzu in, in his role as, a, as an official in the archives of the state of Zhou. And so Lao Tzu says to himself, I can see the decline of the state. The state of Zhou is, is, is declining, you know, called warring states period, all that. And he says, I can do no more. I am going to depart from civilization. And he goes off traditionally sitting on an ox, thus 
a rather late but rather beautiful picture of Lao Tzu sitting on his ox. He gets to the Western Pass where China, there wasn't such a thing at the time, but the civilized world, the Chinese world, whatever you want to call it at the time, ended. And that's at a pass known as the Han Pass. And at the Han Pass, he meets with the guy who's in charge of it, the prefect of the pass, whose name was Yin Xi. And this is a very late picture of him. Again, who knows what he looked like. Um, and so Yin Xi says, oh, you know, you, you're a wise man. What wisdom you must have before you depart China and head to the West. Please, you know, tell me your wisdom. And he writes it down, and that's the book we have. That's the Da Te Ching. So that's the story about how the Da Te Ching came about. Now, this is a 2016 publicity poster for a film. Lao Tzu Chu Guan. Lao Tzu leaves the pass. Uh, translated here, Lao Tzu went out of Hangul Pass. Um, it's available on YouTube if you wish to watch it. Uh, it uh, subtitled. Uh, for free, uh, the whole thing, and I wouldn't. Um, it's, uh, I had a look at it last night. This is him here. It's all full of um, this gentleman with all the white stuff, pointing at this, pointing at the landscape and making philosophical statements. You know, oh, you know, oh, and quoting bits of the Dada Jing. Um, uh, a person close to me commented on seeing this last night. Uh, he looks like Saruman from <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Uh, but, oh, that's awful. Um, so, as I say here, this is Departing from the West. So, what's very interesting about this story, the bit that I particularly like, is that later, later versions, and by later I mean earliest reference this, about the second century of the Common Era, was that what Lao Tzu did when he went to the West was go to India. Um, and you need to know that Buddhism had traditionally entered China in the first century of the Common Era. It kind of was probably a bit later before it got going, but typically that's when people say, traditionally that's when they say Buddhism entered China. So the story is that Lao Tzu in 400, 500 BC, whenever it was, leaves the passes, goes to the West, enters India, and of course, being a wise man, teaches the people. But the poor Indian folk are too simple to understand Taoism. So he teaches them a kind of Taoism light, the kind of easy version. And of course, this is what Buddhism is. Um, and later, uh, texts um, of this variety were published that actually said that um, this is after, in, in the tradition, Lao Tzu himself becomes a god. And he descends to earth in various forms over many, many generations. And one of those incarnations was as the Buddha. Um, and this was published in books, which were then uh, banned under the Yuan dynasty. They were banned completely and they were all destroyed. Um, uh, there's a particular text that explains all of this, these, these very stories and pictures and so forth. Uh, our library happens to have one of them. Um, and it's a copy of a book. There are, I think, uh, when I last counted, only 
five copies of this book extant in the world, and they're all different editions, and we've got one. And um, as I'm fond of saying, we could probably sell it and buy all the rest of the library on the proceeds because it's, it's extraordinarily valuable. Uh, it's digitised and available. It is digitised and available if you want to read it. So anyway, it's, um, this is a particular story that is part of the tradition of Buddhists and Taoists having debates with each other and hating each other and abusing each other and all good fun. Uh, this place, Loguantai, in Shanxi province, it's about 70k west of Xi'an, is the place where Lao Tzu went through the passes, traditionally speaking. Um, this is a temple there. This is a recent hideous large statue of Lao Tzu that they built because they want to make it a tourist attraction. It used to be a very beautiful, rather quiet place that nobody went to, but now it isn't. Um, there we are. So what's this book about? Well, it's, it's about the Tao. Uh, the, the, the Tao De Jing means the scripture of the Tao and the De. So the Tao is the way, the path, and so on. And it is a reasonable thing, therefore, to ask what the Tao is as a first question. However, the first words you read in the accepted version are these ones. It doesn't begin well. Because the first words you read are the Tao that can be spoken of, described, whatever, is not the constant, everlasting, whatever, whatever Tao. Right? So the first thing you read is, what's the Tao? Well, if I could tell you what it was, it wouldn't be the right one anyway. Uh, as I say, not a promising start. Um, and the next bit, Ming Ke Ming Fei Chang Ming, means the name that can be named is not the constant or whatever name. One of the things about the book when it describes the Tao, is that you can't ever say what it is. You can only say what it isn't. And so, one of the famous sections that relates to this, chapter 25, I do not know her name. I give her the title, The Way. I force myself to name her Great. Um, and I've put inverted commas around those because the idea is that, you know, um, you grant it a title, and you have to force yourself to give it a name, and the name is designated great because what else can you say about it? Uh, apart from expression in negatives, it's also expressed in terms of metaphor very frequently, and there's some of them. It's rendered as a gully, a valley, a mother, the course of the river, a path or a road. The path and the road are the root meanings of Tao. So, um, and people who follow the Tao, so you would have thought if this was a text which we think of as a kind of standard philosophical text, that people would think about becoming followers or embodying this thing, you know, that is said to be so magnificent. But we find out in the text itself that those who follow the Tao, truly follow the Tao, who've, you know, attained the Tao in some sense, they are unseen, mysterious, they commune with the abstruse, and they're so deep they can't be fathomed. So it's kind of hard um, to do. We're not talking about a kind of philosophical guidebook here. You know, it's not the kind of thing where you can list the things you need to do to attain the Tao. Uh, it's just not like that. It's all a bit beyond. So I'm going to um, move here. Uh, I'll come back to why I'm talking about this. But I want to talk about a topic briefly that known in the trade as correlative cosmology. 
which is the basis of the way that traditional Chinese people have seen the cosmos. And in particular, the ideas of yin and yang, which no doubt you're familiar with. So having said I'm going to talk about it, they are only mentioned once in this book. Um, but I think they're rather important. So the yin is originally, the original root meaning of the, of the word yin means the shadowed side of a hill. And yang means the sunny side of a hill. And they have this pairing. They're, they're corresponding pairs. They don't oppose, they're just two sides of the possibilities of different things. So we have pairs related to yin and yang. Heaven and earth. Heaven is yang, earth is yin. Men, males are, are yang and females are yin and so on. Rule the minister, summer, winter, stretching and contracting. So it's also, you know, types of movement and fathers and sons. So it's not a straight up and down gender division because a minister, that is the advisor of a ruler, by virtue of their position in relation to the ruler, they're yin. But, of course, in ancient China, this person would be a male, so they're yang. They're a father, so they would be yang, but they're also a son, so they would be yin. So these are relational things. There's no kind of pure essence going on here. Um, so I've said this because when you look at the metaphors used for the Tao in the Tao Te Ching, they come across as being very much yin and never yang. So the Tao is a mother. The Tao is water. Water is wet is, is yin, dry is yang. The spirit of a gully or a valley is, is a yin symbol. And it's characterized by reversal. The Tao comes back on itself all the time. Weakness, the Tao is not strong. If you want to follow the Tao, you must be weak. And taking away, not adding. And these are all characteristics that are yin. And uh, thus, and some of you who might be familiar with various translations might have found it a little odd, but the, the translations I'm using here are from a, 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 a translation I was involved with. I wrote the introduction to it. I didn't do the translation. But the translator, when we were discussing this, said most translations use the pronoun it. But in literary Chinese, there is no gender. Ma, gender is not grammatically marked. Pronouns are not gendered. So most people have rendered it it. But this translator, and I completely agree, uses she. And when you're used to reading translations, the Tao is this, it is this, it is that, it is so on. When you see it written as she is this, she is that, and she is the other, it changes the whole complexion in a very, very interesting way. So that's why I mentioned the yin and the yang. The sage comes up in this book quite a lot, as it does in most early Chinese philosophy, and indeed later Chinese philosophy. So the sage is an important figure in all of these schools of thought. The sage is regarded as being the epitome of whatever school of thought you're talking about, and the embodiment of that. So the person who acts according to the tenets of the philosophy. So in the, in the Da Te Ching, what do we know about the sage? Well, one of the most interesting statements is the sage is not benevolent, which is kind of interesting. But the word used for benevolent is this one, Ren. Oh my God, what's happened? We'll do something. It's characterized by regression. <laughs> and reversal. 
Where is it? Where is it? Projector is cooling down. I'll keep going. So yeah, this, this word here that I was speaking about, Ren, is a, apart from just the interesting notion that a sage is not benevolent, which kind of strikes us as being kind of slightly odd, um, this benevolence word is the key word of early Confucian thought. The sage in Confucianism is the embodiment of benevolence. And Lao Tzu says, not benevolent. In this sense, it's, it's interesting, but it also places the... Um, Oh, there we are. Look at that. Um, thank you so much, sir. Uh, so that what we see here is actually very likely an attack on Confucianism directly. You can't say he's not benevolent without saying he has nothing to do with Confucius. Now, it's also interesting just going back to those first two lines that I had up. The Tao that can be spoken of is not the constant Tao. The name that can be named is not the constant name. The second line is often elided in people's analysis and understanding. They talk about the Tao not being able to be uh, not being able to be spoken of, and so on. And then it gets to names, and people go, "Okay, well, just of course, names." Better. It's my opinion that when the the second line is written there, because names are also very, very Confucian. There's a a, a doctrine in early Confucianism which I won't go into, uh, but believe me, there is, um, called the rectification of names. And it's about, in brief, how the roles in society are defined by the name given to that role. And to do it properly, you need to embody the name of the category, right? So that when Laozi, or whoever it is, says the name that can be named is not the constant name, it's also, in my opinion likely to have been a direct attack on Confucianism, whatever Confucianism was at that time. And that's another question entirely. So apart from this thing about the sage, what does the sage do? He holds himself back. He bends rather than competes. He doesn't act and he doesn't grasp. He reverts to the state of an infant. So this is a kind of unusual model for a sage. Um, he has, in other words, yin characteristics as well. So it, the sage would typically be regarded as male, but the characteristics are those usually associated with yin, which is associated with femaleness. This is a, a quote, one of the famous quotes from the book. A person given to the way makes daily regress, regress and again regress, until coming to not acting. When not acting, there is nothing not done. That last phrase, when acting there is nothing not done, is the rendering this translation of that four-word phrase, wu wei ar wei, which is one of the classic things that you hear in the Tao Te Ching. Um, literally, act by not acting, or something like that. Um, uh, it's not a doctrine that can be easily implemented in practical government. And I mean that, I kind of mean that seriously, that, that people tend to think of early Chinese philosophy being obsessed with statecraft. And much of it is, you know, the ruler should do this, the ruler should do that, you know, this is how you run a war, all that kind of stuff. And here Lao Tzu uses kind of language like that, the sage, you know, the ruler should do this, you know, 
But when you actually look at what he says the ruler should do, it's like, yeah, okay. You know, I'm not quite sure how that would work. But anyway. So I want to move now to... I've given you an idea, I hope, that this book is not entirely clear what it means on the surface, right? So what happens, uh, not only to this book, but Chinese books in general, is that they acquire commentaries, meaning someone some hundreds of years, however many years later, sometimes done by the author themselves, but rarely, writes a commentary. That is, here is a, here is a phrase, and then underneath they write, this means this, and this means this, and this means this. And then some commentaries get so famous that other people write, when the commentator says this, he means this and this and this. So it's a sub-commentary, right? So you've got the text and the commentary and the sub-commentary. And typically, as I'll show you in the picture in a minute, commentaries are written in characters that are half the size of the main text. So you can, you can tell what's a commentary and what's the main text. Although books being books and writing being writing, over hundreds of years, sometimes the commentary gets absorbed into the main text and we get all mixed up. However, Dada Jing, being a, a, a book that's not really obvious in its meaning, has attracted lots of commentaries. Um, one sadly lamented scholar, Isabelle Robinet, some years ago estimated that there had been 700 of them from, sorry, that should read 300 BCE to the present. So, you know, there's been lots and lots and lots of this stuff done. There are four that I'll talk about briefly because they're important. Uh, the first one that we know of is this one written by a person who we don't know actually who he was, Hoshangong, the old man who lives by the river, is how you translate Hoshangong. And he was probably late 2nd century, early 3rd century. The second I'll talk about is this one called Xiang'er. Uh, nobody knows what that means. Um, probably means thinking of you, uh, meaning the Tao is thinking about you, the people, but it's obscure. Um, and the third is by Wang Bi, who lived in the third century of the Common Era. And the fourth is by a guy called Yanfu, who is, as you can see, 19th, 20th century. Um, I raise the Yanfu one now because it's kind of... It shows how uh, commentators interpret the text in the ways that are appropriate to their own place and time. Uh, Yen Fu was very, very famous as one of the major translators of Western works into Chinese during the late 19th century and early 20th century. He was the translator of Montesquieu, Herbert Spencer, a bunch of other people. Um, he read the Dada Jing as being a tract that reflected social Darwinism. And his commentary, which is, you know, it's around, you can find it in any library, is a kind of reading back onto the text really modern Western ideas. Um, that sounds an odd thing to do, but what I want to say is that's what all commentators do. Uh, and even the early ones. So, the first one, this is the first one I spoke about. So he, you can see here the, the main text, and then here is his commentary in half-sized characters. And then the next bit is, you know, back into the main text. So this is a, it's not a particularly early uh, copy of the book. It's just one I could get a picture of. So what I'm going to do with these three is to look at what they make of 
this phrase, this sentence, or yes, yeah, one sentence, from chapter 6. The gully's spirit does not die. She is called the mysterious cleft. This is a rather obscure set of phrasing. So what He Shanggong does, which is not unusual in commentaries, the first thing he does is to say that the word for gully is wrong. And the word for gully should be replaced by the word for nourish, yang. And the spirit, in the gully spirit, should be read as the spirits of the five internal organs. That is your lungs, your heart, your kidneys, your spleen, and your, I missed one, liver. Um, so to read, if you read this first phrase, according to how Shanggong says it should be read, is if you, the, if you nourish the spirits of the five internal organs, you will not die. Now, that's, we would see that and go, I'm not sure that that's what it means, but there we are. He also says, the mysterious cleft, that the word mysterious refers to heaven, and heaven refers to the nose. And cleft refers to earth, and earth refers to mouth. Now, these are not unusual correlations. This is part of correlative cosmology. But nonetheless, you can see that if we read this, the gully spirit does not die, call it the mysterious cleft, or she is called the mysterious cleft, however you want to say it, it's not, we're not going to come up with this immediately, I wouldn't have thought. So that's, that's just one example from He Shanggong. This is the Xiang'e commentary, which is a really weird one. Um, people didn't know about this until the 20th century. This is only known from a cache of uh, manuscripts found in the far western, northwestern settlement called Dunhuang, uh, which is out on the edge of the Gobi Desert. Um, in the early 20th century, uh, people discovered this building which housed thousands of manuscripts that date back way back into Chinese history to the earliest Dunhuang manuscript, Nathan? Third, fourth century, as old as that, yeah. Um, this one, uh, the manuscript itself is not that early. But the text belongs to the tradition of religious Taoism and is associated with a particular branch of religious Taoism called the uh, Celestial Masters sect, the Tian Shi Dao. This has had a lot of scholarship on it and there's a lot of dispute about it, but some people claim that it um, was written by a man called Zhang Lu, who lived at the end of the second century of the Common Era and was the grandson of the founder of religious Taoism. If it is, it's a totally extraordinary thing. Some people think it's probably 400 years later. There's only one copy of it known to exist, etc., etc. We just don't know. However, it's really interesting because of its reading of Taoism at the time, uh, the Tao Te Ching at the time. Um, it also talks about this same thing. You'll remember that Gali Hoshangung said that it meant to nourish. He, Xiang'er, or whoever wrote Xiang'er, said that Gali is actually miswritten for desire, Yu. And you can see that there is some similarity in those characters. And so he would read it that if you desire that your spirits do not die, and then proceeds to give instructions about what you do if you don't want your spirits to die, and this, in particular, knowing the background of Xiang'er, refers to the spirits that you have inside your body, that this tradition of Taoism holds that throughout your body it is peopled by many, many gods and spirits, and you nurture them 
you nurture the good ones and you starve the bad ones. And, and this leads to longevity and ultimately, one hopes, immortality. The third one, which is the most influential uh, that we have, is this one by Wang Bi. Wang Bi, as they say, lived in the third century. He's known uh, for being part of a school called Chuanqie, usually translated dark learning, um, and is, yeah, I don't want to use the word metaphysical, but I'll use the word metaphysical. Um, this is the beginning of the text, and you can see his commentaries as well there. So he says about this same thing, what is the spirit of the gully? It's the non-gully within the gully. <laughs> now, that, that helps, as you can imagine. Um, he says that the spirit of the gully has no shape and no shadow. It occupies the, he says, it occupies the lowest point and is therefore the highest of all things. And this is where we... I, you might be feeling that this is the Dada Jing you know, right? This is the Dada Jing that appealed to people in the 1960s who had long hair and smoked dope, which, you know, was very important. That's when it really boomed. Um, so, uh, since it is so low, he says, it cannot be given a proper designation. Thus, when she is called the mysterious cleft, what he's doing is emphasising the calling, the naming. It's like this is the tradition that says you can't name it, it's obscure, nobody knows about it, all you can do is give it some arbitrary designation, and so we give it this arbitrary designation, but that's not to say we understand it at all. This is the kind of obscure reading, as it were. Um, he can't define it, as I say, so he just gives it a label. So this was the situation up until 19, the 1970s, really. Um, but because of archaeology, we are in the peculiar position of knowing more about the Dao De Jing now than most readers did for more than 1,500 years. Um, and we know that because of two excavations that took place. Uh, one in 1972-74 in a suburb of the city of Changsha in southern China at a place called Mawangdui. Um, and that tomb uh, was part of a, the, this text that came out of that tomb was found in um, one of three tombs. It's a group of three tombs. Uh, it was the tomb, uh, the head tomb, as it were, was the tomb of the Marquis of Dai. Dai was a place. He died in 186 BCE. Um, the son, his son, or probably his son, um, people are almost certain it is, but not absolutely certain, where the manuscripts were found was sealed in 168 uh, when he died. Um, his mother, the wife of the Marquis of Dai, who we like to call Lady Dai, <laughs> we do like to call her Lady Dai, actually, she lived beyond both her son and her husband, and she's also buried there. So the, the silk manuscripts that I'll show you in a minute came out of the third tomb, the, 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 the son's tomb at the Malangre excavation. And then 1993, nobody could believe it when it happened, another tomb was excavated in a town called Guodian, which is about 150k north of Changsha. And that seems to be, though we don't know, the, the tomb of teacher of royal prince, and we don't know its exact date, but it's mid-4th to mid-3rd century BCE, so it's somewhat earlier than Mawangdui. So... This is what the Gordian 
Tao Te Ching looks like. Um, that's how you write Guodian, and this is where it is, near the city of Jingmen, Jingmen in Hubei province, is where it, where it was. So this is how a book, quote-unquote book, was written down in three or four hundred years before the Common Era. These strips are made of bamboo, and they have writing on them, as you can see. Now, wooden strips like this, bamboo strips, can be of different lengths. This is important. And they were tied up. So the way that a book would work would be that you'd have, you know, 50 bamboo strips or something, and they'd all be laid out like this, and you'd read them this way, as you do in Chinese, and then they'd be tied up together with string. And then they'd be rolled like that. And so when it was stored, it would be stored as a roll. And indeed, the word for a chapter in modern Chinese and pre-modern Chinese actually means to roll, a juan. It means to roll it up. So it's a roll of this stuff. Um, in Guodian, uh, it being a grave of something thousand years old, uh, the string had rotted away. This often happens uh, when they discover these wooden strips. And so they were left with a whole bunch of, of bits of wood um, uh, and they had to sort them out. So as I say, it was important how long they were because they could set, they, they separated them into lengths and then they worked out where the markings for the string had been and so you can actually align them and then you put them in order because there are some very clever people who know how to read these characters, which almost nobody does because they're so damn obscure. And here you can see a publication of that with the characters rendered into modern characters with appropriate notes. So this is Gordian. What did it actually have? Well, what you end up with is there were actually three sets of bamboo strips that related to the Dada Jing. Um, and it appears that each of the sets, they weren't chapter one, two, three. They were three sets of things that all had something to do with the Dada Jing, but were separate from each other, which was rather intriguing. I won't go into why this is so, but it is. Um, <coughs> of those, so there were 71 strips that had to do with the Dada Jing. In the grave, there were 721 that had writing on them. For some reason, there were another um, 80 or something that didn't actually have writing on them. So I'm not sure. They were maybe the, like the frontispiece and the copyright details and so on. Um, of those things, there is material from 31 of the traditional 81 chapters. So it's not a complete text by any means. What we find, if you look at the writing and you, are, you compare it to the, the received text, the order is different of the statements. Uh, there's only 16 things that look like original chapters that appear in it. Uh, in total, it's only got 40% of the material that's in the edition that Wang Bi commentated on. So what is it? There's been quite a lot of speculation after the archaeology was done and the philologists had they go at it and worked out what it actually said and we found out. Then the question arose, what are these things? How do they relate to the text that we know? <clears throat> um, some people think that it's, these were somehow sources, different sources 
that came together in some way with other stuff added in that ended up with the text we know today. Um, that's possibly true. Who knows? Um, what seems likely, but again, it's just speculation, is that um, the Tao Te Ching, like one or two other early, early texts in Chinese, particularly Confucius's Analects, the Lun Yu, are sayings. There's sayings rather than composed discourse, if you will. And that these texts derive from people writing down what great teachers said. And that that was an oral culture. And that those teachers passed on to their students who became teachers who passed on to their students and so forth. And that what we see here are three different sets of people who decided that some of those sayings should be written down. So they're the earliest rendering of an oral tradition into text, but it's been done differently in three cases. Um, that's probably what we have, but as I say, so long ago we don't know. The Mawangdui text is rather different. This is the one that comes from 168, or at least the tomb was sealed in 168 BCE. It comes from Changsha, as I say, that's here. This is the tomb. Remarkable tombs. I mean, really amazing tombs. Um, along with this text, there's extraordinary material that came out of the Mawangdui tombs, including uh, lacquer work that has become very popular to copy in contemporary China. But this extraordinary range of lacquer work and two banners that you might have seen that are shaped like this in tea, covered in beautiful paintings of mystical trees and animals and extraordinary things. I'm not going to talk about them today. This is the text we have of the Tao Te Ching from Maungtui. So two silk manuscripts were discovered again in, in the tomb. Um, we know from the style of the characters and other technical details to do with tabooing names and things like that, that the two manuscripts actually date from about 200 and about 180. So they were not made for the burial. They were, they were already, what, 40-odd years and 20-odd years old by the time they were buried with this person who died. Um, what we have is, interestingly, a text that looks much more like the one that we have today. It's very, very similar to the one we have today compared with the stuff from Gordien. The chapter divisions are a bit different. What's particularly interesting is that part one and part two are reversed. So... Some people have said because the Dao De Jing is called the Dao De Jing because part one talks about the Dao and part two talks about the De, one of the translations of this material calls it the De Dao Jing because the De stuff comes first and the Dao stuff comes second. Um, what's really good about the Ma Wang Dui text is that a lot of the grammatical bits and pieces that are missing in the received text is there. They somehow dropped out between 168... BCE and the received text from about the third century CE, which is after all almost 500 years, you know, it's a long time. Um, and a lot of that resolved some of the ambiguities. What we're left with now is a, is a much better idea about what the original sayings, sorry, what of the original sayings was intended to be ambiguous and what of the original sayings appeared ambiguous but is actually rather clear. Um, so that's made a, a lot of difference in this thing. So I just want to 
wind up by asking what the point of the Dada Jing is. I mean, I'm not saying what the point of us reading it is. It's a wonderful thing, and it's so um, evocative, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and everyone should read it. Um, but at the time, I mean, what, what was it, this thing? It's not a philosophical treatise, unlike much of the rest of the stuff going around at the time in China. As it stands, it's not, it's not set out logically. It's not step one, step two, step three. It's not instructions to a ruler. It's certainly not a manual of statecraft, as I say there. You think, so how, what do you do with it? Was it just a kind of poetic reflection that was read for fun? or It certainly couldn't be read for profit. Um, uh, it seems, as I say, to be a remnant of collections of sayings. So it might originally have been some kind of record of the sayings of a notable teacher. But as we say, as I showed at the beginning, we don't know who this man was. He doesn't even have a name like Kongzi Confucius. He is just known as the, the old master. Right? So it goes back a long way, and, and it's probably something of the... the the, um, something of that sort. One possibility that's been uh, raised, and I find it actually kind of attractive, is that its ambiguity is not intentional, but it's a kind of mnemonic. I explain what I mean. In Chinese tradition, particularly in religious tradition, um, there are books that are written where that are public. Everybody can read them. Um, but you would have a hard time knowing what they meant. You can read the words, but you think this is just kind of some kind of strange gobbledygook. The, the, the technical term, like there's a lot of metaf metaphors and stuff and so on. Um, and a lot of contemporary uh, Taoism material, that, or at least not contemporary, but you know, within the last few hundred years, material that was written for, for practicing Taoists is like that. What you need, and traditionally in China this is how education worked, what you need is a master. And so you would have this obscure text that you would read together and the master would say, when it says blah, 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 what we mean is this and this and this, right? Um, and there's a whole genre which still exists in, in some parts of various Chinese texts called oral instructions, koujie, that... that seem to have been attached to particular texts. So there's this model where you've got the, the basic material, which is not immediately understandable, and then you've got the explanatory material that came orally. Now, it may be that that's what we have here, that the Dada Jing is written in this pithy aphoristic style, easy to memorise, not many words, so you'd memorise it, and then by recalling the particular phrase you would remember what your teacher told you it actually meant, and then you'd do stuff. So if it were that, what's it actually about? I mean, that's just saying how it might work, but it doesn't say what it's about. One of the contentions, suppositions, suspicions, is that it's actually about a thing called self-cultivation. Self-cultivation is a, an age-old Chinese thing, people still do it today, where you try to um, uh, perfect the body in which you were born to create a better body that lasts longer, gives you great life, ultimately become an immortal. And you do that through things like breathing, exercises of various sorts, 
um, taking medicines of various sorts that you you um, you know you make up from minerals and plants and so forth. Uh, you could do uh, meditations of various sorts. You could do certain sexual practices and so on. This is all part of self-cultivation. Some of it was kept rather secret and occult over the centuries. These days, it reappears occasionally in, for those of you familiar with China, in things like the Qigong boom of the 1980s and 90s. So it looks like it might have been some kind of self-cultivation manual that you needed the explanations to understand. We get a hint from that. One chapter, chapter five, mentions the bellows and the blow tube, which are old kind of metallurgical things for pumping air. But they probably mean the lungs and the throat. So it probably is referring to some kind of breathing practice. We don't know what it was, but that may well be what it is. Another possibility is that it's a kind of meditational tool. That is, when you read it, and when you've got this language that's full of negation and it's full of surprising statements, you know, the sage does nothing and yet nothing is not done, or um, uh, things that are highly metaphorical, it may be, and here I'm not saying that it's Buddhist, this is way before Buddhism, but it may have the same function as the thing we find in Zen Buddhism called a koan. Now, you're possibly familiar with this. It's like the sound of one hand clapping, right? So that, that's a famous koan. So that a Buddhist master will give their student a koan to meditate on. The koan is something which doesn't make any sense. Um, but as you meditate on it, it has a role of kind of snapping you out of your idea of the nature of reality because it doesn't conform to the reality that you know. So um, you are released from ideas about dualism of right and wrong and so on and so forth in Buddhism. Now, I'm not saying that that's got anything to do with the message of the Dada Jing. What I am saying is that the kind of text it is, its aphorisms, the fact that it's expressed through negation, that it's not immediately understandable what it means, that it's kind of paradoxical, may have had the same function. If it had the same function, we don't know what end was in sight. You know, we don't know what they were trying to do by doing this, but it may be that it had that kind of function. As I say, you know, what in this kind of text, context is everything. We need to know, to understand it, we need to know what surrounded the text, culturally, socially, religiously, and so on. But the context is missing. So what we're left with is this, is this ambiguous, wonderful thing that commentators can make of, in a sense, what they will. Thus, my two favourite citations on this text. One comes from a, a 13th, 14th century scholar, Du Daotian. Each time the way has descended to earth, it's been different. Thus, Han dynasty commentators produced Han Laozi. Jin dynasty commentators produced a Jin Laozi. And Tang and Sung commentators produced Tang and, that should be, and Sung Laozi's. In other words, even in the what, 14th century, 13th century, Chinese scholars were noticing that the meaning of the text only became apparent through the rendering of the commentators and that each commentator had their own view of what this thing meant. Um, this other one comes from the American scholar Hans Welch, sadly dead, 1957. 
from his book, The Parting of the Way, how easily we find our own image in the Tao Te Ching. It is a magic mirror, always found to reflect our concept of the truth. So I know this is a bit kind of, you know, aphoristic myself, but rather than this being a book that changed humanity, I would reverse it and say this is a book that, this is a book that humanity changed <laughs> and keeps on changing if you look on the internet with some of the <coughs> execrable quote-unquote translations that exist. So finally, because I've made that complaint, it is my duty to tell you where you can go if you want to read a decent version of this thing. These are two good translations. Uh, this one is one that I was involved with, so you don't need to read the introduction because you just heard it. Um, and this is a much older one. This is translated by D.C. Lau, who was at the School of Oriental African Studies and in Hong Kong for many years. This came out before the archaeology. <coughs> so this is a translation of the, of the received text. It's a translation that sees it as a kind of statecraft thing. Um, this one came out obviously after, it's not that many years old, by a man called Edmund Ryden, um, who made a big study of all this material. Uh, and it takes into account these other textual traditions, though it's not a translation of those texts that we have received. Um, they're both cheap. Um, if you want to look at the archaeological material, there's this man, Robert Henricks, who's made it his business to do it. So this one was his book that came out. This is the De Dao Jing, a new translation based on the recently discovered Maoangue texts. So that's the ones from 168 before the Common Era. And this one is a translation of the startling new documents found at Gordian um, that's obviously more recent. Uh, and if you want to look at the commentarial tradition, it's a bit more light on because, you know, and it's a bit more academic. But uh, on the left, yes, the left, is um, about the Wang Bi commentary. This is by the very good German sinologist Rudolf Wagner. Um, and this book, which I include here, Steve Bokenkamp's Early Taoist Scriptures, is where you can find a full translation of the Xiang Er commentary, the, the really Taoist commentary, um, as well as numerous, not numerous, several other wonderful early texts of, of uh, religious Taoism. So, yes, that's where I finish. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. People want to come back and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, and find the text. I'll I'm find, sure that um, Asia Book Room would be only too happy to supply you with copies yeah. of all of these texts yeah. and some others. Is that not right? All of them. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, questions? Questions for Ben? Right. Take it. Hmm. It's a definitive edition. I've got the, 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 the Penguin Classic. Oh, Jonathan Starr. Oh, it's rubbish. The one that I read. Yeah. <laughs> you want to get rid of that. <clears throat> Sorry. Are there any unfinished, promising excavations that you know of that might change I, I don't know of them. Um, Chinese archaeology is a bit like that. Um, unless you're particularly involved, they keep their cards fairly close to their chest before things pop out may happen, we all hope. Um, one of the things that actually came out from both of these excavations, which is in a way even more wonderful than these early versions of the Tao Te Ching, are a lot of texts that 
we knew about through their names that are referred to in early bibliographies of imperial libraries and that kind of thing, but had disappeared, you know, millennia ago. Um, and there they are again. And that's been really tremendous because it has given a lot more context to the, the world of thought of those uh, eras. Uh, but no, I don't know if there's going to be any more dug up. It'd be fun if there were. Um, another text that's often seen as a classic of the Taoism is the Promising Text. Ah. Um, I don't actually know why, I mean, I'm not an expert in anything, but why is that be seen as also part of Taoism? I mean, does Trump talk about Tao Te Ching at all, and does that help our understanding of Tao Te Ching at all? Um, okay, so originally they, they were grouped together by Sima Qian, or his father. Um, the, the original historical records contains a, a bibliographical section and he or his father um, is said to have invented the categories Taoism, Confucianism, Legalism and so on um, and then he put books under those categories and the Laozi and the Zhuangzi and the Liezi and some others were under Daojia, Taoism. Um, uh, they are they are obviously related. Um, uh, they both have a stress on non-action, on non-involvement in government, a whole bunch of things. They're, they're quite clearly related. The Zhuangzi, although it's usually thought to be later than the Laozi, in terms of when the text actually was formalised as a text, it's probably earlier. Um, and uh, what's really a difference between them um, is kind of what I was saying before. The Zhuangzi clearly has an author, maybe more than one author, but it clearly has authors. That is, somebody who sat down and started writing and composed the text as a composed text. Um, and it reads like that. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful work. Um, probably the greatest book ever written, I think. But the, the Laozi is much more a collection of sayings. So it's a different style of book. But... Uh, yes, they're related, but they're not as related as, on the Confucian side, say, the, the Mencius and the Lunyu. There's much more um, uh, kind of reference between the Confucian texts as a, as a kind of conscious school than there is between the Taoist authors. But no, I think they deserve to be put together, but they deserve to be considered separately. The Zhuangzi is in no way a commentary on the Laozi. That's clear. But they're, they're of the same party. It's the power of the librarian, Roxanne, that you get then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Someone put them on that shelf. That's right. That's, ex that's exactly what happened. And we've been living with it ever since. There you go. There you go. Yes. Yeah, 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 it does. Um, so I'll answer that in two ways. Uh, one is, um, uh, thanks to one of my students who's here, I know this, but contemporary Taoist priests, um, uh, many of whom are very uneducated, uh, recite it uh, as part of ritual to this day, um, according to my learned student. They don't understand a word of what they're saying. 
but it has a kind of, it's a thing you do. Incantation. Yeah, it's a kind of incantation. It also has a kind of mantic power. That is that it's, a, it's powerful in and of itself. The words themselves are believed to be powerful in and of themselves. So that's on the religious side. Um, uh, it's widely read. Um, I, I happened to be hanging out with some Chinese officials a couple of weeks ago. Um, and one of them, who was an expert on international trade or something, engaged me on this book and, and said, so what do you, you know, what message do you think it has for contemporary politics? Which is not a kind of question that I felt capable of answering, and I kind of said, ah, none. Um, uh, but he, um, he, he wanted to be very earnest about, you know, what you would do if you were a politician and you wanted to take the Da Da Jing seriously, which is a, a challenging, um, if pointless, discussion <laughs> point. Um, uh, so there are a lot of people who read it, just in, in you know, people who, who are interested in stuff read it and it's regarded as being one of the, you know, the gems, the, the high points of, of Chinese culture, especially if you're a little bit unorthodox. It, no, it's very, very orthodox. But if you're, if you're like, you know, it's the kind of thing artists read because it's not the formal tradition that was associated with government and the exam system, except during the Tang Dynasty and other times. But it's, it's a little bit, you know, the kind of thing that, that interesting people read. Um, uh, the third thing to say is that it's been part of, under not the current president, but the previous one, Hu Jintao. Uh, Hu Jintao was very, very keen on Confucius and uh, his incredibly banal reading, misreading of Confucius, where it was all about you know the harmonious society rubbish. But nonetheless, he was very keen on Confucius. And a lot of people who studied Confucius did very, very well out of him because he was sponsoring research programs and commemorations and, you know, heritage building of Confucius' hometown and so on. Um, people interested in Taoism got in on the act and they uh, decided that they would also proclaim Lao Tzu and the Dada Jing as being, you know, great treasures of the Chinese cultural inheritance stuff. And um, so there were, like, and, and they convinced the authorities to do that. So there have been really heavily sponsored events, publication programs and stuff, probably in the last five years, a little bit less recently. Although Xi Jinping, the current president, who's very fond of quoting the classics, um, uh, and, and people publishing things about the selections of the classics that he quoted and why it's relevant to today, um, likes also to quote the Da Te Ching um, and then give it a, a meaning which isn't obviously there about how officials should not be corrupt and how you should only have three dishes and one soup for lunch, that kind of thing that he, he goes on about. But it's, um, so it's used, it's being used in a kind of contemporary propagandistic way as well as being a text that people just kind of find fascinating. I mean, it is a, one of the things about it, because of its ambiguity, is endlessly fascinating. And people read it and read it and ponder it and puzzle it through and all that stuff. So, yeah. uh, the man in the purple jumper. Two, one comment, one question. Um, 
it's interesting that um, the more we do archaeological knowledge of old archaeological texts um, using different kind of Western science or Western methods of techniques to dealing with that kind of ancient texts, it's actually proved that it's become ambiguous. That just like the beginning of the, the, of the text, that mm. you you offer in different layers of um, excavation, excavation of text, excavation of knowledge. It is really offering the, the truth answer, and it can be presenting also many different other examples of texts that uh, the truth is not really important. It's not really matters. Rather, it's give you this kind of the, the process and ambiguity making. It's maybe actually exactly the the point Lausi is trying to to to, to 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 offer. So I think that's it's kind of kind of like a circulation. That's the process of you are, you are trying to offer is actually back to the starting point of the, the, the text itself. That's the comment. It's a sort of mental exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a kind of mental exercise. Yeah. The question is, um, um, all of these techniques um, is asking the question, what is it? But it doesn't really explain why certain texts become so important and why some being neglected in the history of texts. That's true. It doesn't. I mean, what I'd say about the ambiguity question, um, and I'll be, I'll be perverse here, um, well, not really. Uh, there's two questions there. One is about the ambiguity of the... Uh, one is about when we read a text about ascertaining what it means and what it means to say that a text means something. Okay, so that's all those hermeneutic questions. What I would like to do is to separate that fairly radically from questions of the status of the text as a text. And I think we can be as unambiguous as it is possible to be about that. Um, what we can say is we can be very, very empirical and say that at this point of time, there was this. At this point of time, there was that. Now, if those factual data points mean that the meaning of what a quote-unquote book is becomes ambiguous, then it's not an ambiguity of interpretation. It's an ambiguity of, of actual production. The actual thing itself has lost the status of it's that thing and that thing only. Um, we see here the the generation of a text. What that means is that it puts the text as received into a different context. That is, it's not the be-all and end-all. But um, we can be absolutely certain about what led to it. I mean, it's a question of, of being absolutely clear about what we don't know. Yeah. And that, I think, is, is different from the first part of your question. Right, I think the point, sorry. I think the point is that it's really it's not about the meaning of the text, rather it's the incapability of interpretation of the text. Um, I think I totally agree with you. This um, one is lack of resources. Second is uh, in each stage of the text, mm -hmm. it's actually become a discourse. It's not only text, but also you're talking about oral commemoration, yeah, yeah, yeah. oral instruction. Mm -hmm. So all of these kind of practices interact with the text and at each different stage. Sure. And each stage creates a process of production, mm -hmm. and then we can't really have 
have ability to help handle with that kind of Well, no, I mean, I don't, I don't know that... I, yes, I go with you as far as the final statement. What I would say is, and, and here I bring in the question of translation, I mean literal translation from one language to another. I mean, it is banal to say that all translation is a process of interpretation, of course, that we all accept that. In cases like this, it's much more so because any attempt to render those words, those Chinese words into English, means that you have to decide what they mean first. And so what you're doing is, or what people have done typically, is to translate them according to one of the commentators. So they're not honest about it, or they're not clear about it necessarily, but what they're doing is, is saying... Um, I translate this line of Dao Te Ching according to the way that Wang Bi says that it should be read. So in that sense, whenever you choose to translate this text, you choose to do it according to some either previous interpretation or your own interpretation based on other things, right? So it's, it's very... Um, um, it's not ambiguous... In that sense, it's just that you pays your money and it takes your choice. You know, I'm going to do it according to that. I'm going to do it according to that. And you, it produces a different thing. Um, I think it's just... There's a degree of irresponsibility amongst some translators, especially this kind of work, that they're not open about what they're doing. But it's clear that is what they're doing to some extent. Yeah. Matthew's the last one. That's one. That's I feel very honored to ask the last question. Then I'm not sure if you know the story. There's a retelling of the Lao Tzu Chu Guan story in Lu Xun's writing. Mm. One of the Lu Xun's short stories, Chu mm Guan, -hmm. uh, which I read uh, when I was uh, high, uh, in high school. Well, I didn't know about the story then, but then when I reread it, I think it, it's really interesting because uh, in the story, uh, Lao Tzu was um, um, portrayed as a senior to Confucius, and then Confucius was uh, portrayed as a very mean person. Mm. And then, actually, it was Lu Xun said in Lu Xun's retold story, it was Confucius that forced Lao Tzu to go past the mm. uh, go out the passes. Go the passes, and then I think uh, because you know that Lu Xun is very um, angry with Confucius and. Uh, in the story, and Lao Tzu portrayed as a very, very, very wisely, uh, uh, very wise, uh, like a sage. Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that uh, the scholarship in Republican period, embodied as embodied in Chu's new story, reflected <coughs> a new reading of, uh, of Taoism and the, the origin of Taoism? Because in his story, I think he gave an explanation why Lao Tzu needed to go mm -hmm. meet these exodus and, uh, and how the Tao Te Ching actually came into being by, by Yin Xi. Hmm. Well, the story of the leaving the passes and coming into being with Yin Xi is very, very old. So he, Lu Xun was not making it up. It wasn't well known at that time. Um, you know, research on, on that kind of, those kind of Taoist texts was in its infancy at that time. So he wasn't particularly um, well-informed. I mean, he was, he was quite well-informed, as well-informed as anybody could be. It's just that the work hadn't been done. This, a lot of these texts were very obscure, unknown, and so forth. In fact, the, 
what the main corpus of texts from Taoism, the religion as opposed to these philosophical ones, um, you know, was only reprinted in 1928. Before that, there were only two, I think, or three sets of the works extant in China, and they were in temples and you couldn't see them. Um, so that really, you know, to, to expect him to have a, a, a kind of subtle knowledge of the history of Taoism is just asking too much. No, I think he was actually appealing to a more general audience. Oh, no, of course he was. Of course he was. And, and I mean, old tales retold is the way it's normally translated. Um, yeah. Um, look, I think that, um, uh, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think... Lu Xun was using Lao Tzu as a stick to beat Confucius with, um, pretty much. I mean, at that time, you know, to my mind rightly, people were very critical of Confucius and the, the effect of the tradition on, on the Chinese people. And, and he was, you know, in his clever way, being, um, you know, witty and, and uh, you know, a bit parodistic, about the whole thing, and was but was making a point about, um, you know, who was good and who was bad. Simply so. Yeah. Sorry for those who aren't familiar. Lu Xun is um, the best-known modern Chinese writer. Died in 1936. Um, honored on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, largely because he, when he died, he had <coughs> had to make a decision which side he was going to go with. So um, he was able to be honored by both. Had he lived much longer, he would have had to go to the communist side or go to the other side, and then one side would have hated him and the other side would have loved him. But because he died in 36, um, he didn't have to make that decision and, and therefore is honoured by posterity. Uh, nonetheless, a wonderful, wonderful writer. I mean, a really, really superb writer. And, yeah, thanks. Well, thank you, Ben, for sharing all of that with us. I'm sure everybody's... <laughs>